Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. Live from the steps of the Capitol Building, this is the award-winning stamp show here today, episode number 191, brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center. This is Tom. This is Cash. This is Scott. This is Mark. Today we're going to be talking about the United States Capitol Building, Mark Cuban, duck stamps, because the competition was this week, and more. So let's jump right in. This week on September 18, 1793, George Washington laid the cornerstone of the United States Capitol Building, home of the legislative branch of the American government. So the executive, the head of the executive branch of the government laid the cornerstone for the legislative branch of the government. If you say so. Interesting. The building would take nearly a century to complete as architects came and went, the British set fire to it, and it was called into service during the Civil War. What was called into service? The building. The here, bil- you mean the building didn't start until the Civil War being used? Here, here building, building. <laughs> As a young nation, the United States had no permanent capital, and Congress met in eight different cities, including Baltimore, New York, and Philadelphia before 1791. In 1790, Congress passed the Residence Act, which gave President Washington the power to select a permanent home for the federal government. The following year, he chose what would become the District of Columbia from land provided by Maryland. Washington picked three commissioners to oversee the capital city's development and they in turn chose French engineer Pierre-Charles Léonfant to come up with the design. However, Léonfant clashed with the commissioners and was fired in 1792. He then moved on to uh, do tube socks, I believe, after he lost his commission. Okay. More tube socks. Because everyone needed those in 1792. Oh, it was all the fashion. A design competition was then held with a Scotsman named William Thornton submitting the winning entry for the Capitol building. He originally designed golf clubs, not tube socks. Oh! In September 1793, Washington laid the Capitol's cornerstone and the lengthy construction process, which would involve a line of project managers and architects, got underway. In 1800, Congress moved into the Capitol's north wing, and in 1807, the House of Representatives moved into the building's south wing, which wasn't actually finished until 1811. So they got to move into a construction in progress. I wonder if in the 1790s or 1800s they had pardon our dust signs like they do nowadays. <laughs> I've lived through several uh, constructions. Uh, this uh, It's difficult to do business, that's for sure. It is. Yeah. During the War of 1812, the British invaded Washington, D.C. and set fire to the Capitol on August 24, 1814. But a rainstorm saved the building from total destruction. This, in turn, forced Congress to meet in nearby temporary quarters from 1815 until 1819. So they had to work through construction. 
and then the place burnt down. Well, first they had to vote on how to authorize (laughs) and pay for the construction, which probably took three out of the four years. Oh, well, actually, it's much, much more than that. The Residency Act uh, actually incorporated the entire District of Columbia. It wasn't just the capital. And the reason they put it there is because we had this uh, slavery thing going on, and there was a lot of contention between the North and the South. So they couldn't put it in Philadelphia, couldn't put it in New York, couldn't put it in Boston because the South all yelled and screamed. So they put it in between the two in literally a swamp. They, they said, this swamp is now going to be Washington, D.C. <laughs> so basically, before Trump ever became president, the swamp already was drained. It, it took actually a long time. Um, Zachary Taylor, who everybody says died from doing a really, really long speech at his inauguration. Actually, from swamp gas. At, well, actually, they and they've known this for a hundred years, but they never, never, you know, they don't bring it up. If you look at his symptoms, he had dysentery, not pneumonia, and he probably got the dysentery because he's living in a swamp with a terrible sewage system, and he caught dysentery because he was living at the White House in the District of Columbia. Well, that's what you get for chasing dysentery. That's it. Hey, by the way, did we go and burn anything down in Great Britain? Uh, no, but we beat up a bunch of their ships off the coast. Yeah. Yay, yay, giant Paul Jones. Yeah. Scott can comment on that. Yeah, we should go Why? burn something in Great yay, Britain. Yay, Navy. John Paul Jones. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, on a completely separate side note, speaking of things that were sunk off the East Coast by the U.S. and the British and all that, they think they found the Endeavor off the coast of Rhode Island now. Yeah, it's off of Goat Island, which is in Narragansett Bay. Whoa. Off of Newport, Newport Rhode Island. That's so Im- they're that's hoping They're hoping to confirm it in the near future, they yeah. had, early next year. They, they, but they think they found it. 20 years ago, they found a reference... Uh, saying that the the ship, the Lord Sandwich, had been scuttled. It was originally for uh, the British had purchased it after it had been renovated and, and renamed, and they were going to use it as a prison trans, prisoner transport ship. But they scuttled it, hoping to block Newport Harbor. Then uh, with like 12 other ships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. During the civil or the Revolutionary War, and uh, so they about twenty years ago they found a reference that 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 was one of the ships that was scuttled there, and they had thirteen ships that they found when they did a high resolution uh, sonar project, and uh, they have since whittled it down to maybe one or two, and they're supposed to announce Friday that they think they've determined which one it is. Yeah, and for people who do not live in Boston, Boston was a huge, huge tidal marsh. It, uh, it didn't look anything like it th- does this today. This is Newport, not Boston. Oh, Newport. I don't no. know about Newport. Sorry. Rhode Island. Yeah. yeah. Different state. Oh, okay. But anyway, uh, the, the Lord Sandwich uh, was the uh, endeavor. Started mm-hmm. out as, uh, I think, the Earl of Pembroke. And then four years later, when the British Navy purchased it, they renamed it the HMS Endeavor, which it, it carried that name for many years. And then, uh, and of course, it sailed all over the world uh, under Captain Cook. Which, of course, they just released stamps for not all that long ago. Yeah, yeah imagine that. Well, back to the capital. 
In the early 1850s, work began to expand the Capitol to accommodate the growing number of congressmen. Construction was temporarily halted in 1861 while the Capitol was used by Union troops as a hospital and barracks during the Civil War. Following the war, expansions and modern upgrades to the building continued into the next century. An interesting t- thing, too, slightly before the Civil War, the District of Columbia used to be a square or a diamond shape. The part on the other side of the river, they had actual uh, slave market. So yes. they gave that piece to Virginia. Before that, they had in the U.S. Capitol slave sales going on. And so they didn't want that, so they just cut off the piece that was doing the slave sales. And that's why it looks kind of weird. Here, Virginia, take this. Yeah, take this off our hands. We don't want to deal with it. We're PC. Well, today the Capitol building, with its famous cast iron dome, an important collection of American art is part of the Capitol complex, which includes six congressional office buildings and three Library of Congress buildings, all developed in the 19th and 20th centuries. The Capitol itself has, has 540 rooms, covers a ground area of about four acres, and is, vi- is visited by 3 million to 5 million people each year. Some of the stamps issued featuring the Capitol building, or in some cases just its dome, include Scott number 572, whose design was later reused for the Washington 2006 World Philatelic Exhibition, yeah, this which is- was Scott's number 4075B. This is the $2 uh, Fourth Bureau Fourth Bureau issue, gorgeous stamp. Gorgeous yes. Stamp. The sesquicentennial issue, Scott number 992, and even into the back of the book in Scott number C64. There are several more, but there's too many to list here. Yeah. And now we're going to move on to uh, How the, about postal, I- the Postal Service getting evicted in uh, Milwaukee. Cash? Oh, yeah. This is a great, great story. Um, they have a million-square-foot postal facility in uh, Milwaukee. That's, that's one of their major sorting centers, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. And anyway, the uh, it's on the side of a river, and the Postal Service isn't maintaining it very well. The uh, They have nets on the inside to catch falling ceiling tiles and stuff like that. Uh, well, the fa- part- Falling concrete. Well, falling everything. Uh, somebody says or it says that that grass is growing on the roof which i don't have a problem with any additional source of income for the u.s postal service i think is welcome and if if it's legal there hey go for it well that would provide insulation wouldn't it that too so you have a an extra income and an insulation source. Man, that makes for a hell of a break room. <laughs> and, well, I can see if, if grass is growing up there, then it's probably destroying the ceiling. Anyway, the uh, owner of the building goes, hey, guys, you're supposed to be maintaining this place. This place is falling apart. And uh, so they are basically putting it off. They have another place. They're going to build another facility. But they aren't building it because it was put on hold because of budget reasons. So the landlord is yelling and screaming and saying, hey, out. You guys are out. You guys are destroying my building. And uh, But realistically, eh, maybe he wants to tear down the building anyway and put up condos. Well, it's in a, it's in a real nice area. Of, oh, gorgeous area. And uh, the property is actually worth w- probably a lot more than what they're paying for. Yeah. Although it is the government, so they may be overpaying for it. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. You know, that rarely is the issue 
because you know you have your cash source but if he can see a way of getting these people out of it and selling it to somebody else you know he's probably not the original person who signed the lease i mean i don't know that but you know real estate flips over when uh, you have major tenants in it like this so he could be waiting for you know the post office to leave and he goes, hey, here's an opportunity he's not waiting. to get he's, him out of here. He's not waiting. He's suing to evict. Yeah, exactly. It'll be interesting uh, to see if the U.S. Post Office gets evicted. Well, supposedly they have issued building permits for renovations. So. Yeah, but that's usually just a time delay sort of thing. They blame it on the building permits. Uh, you can do a hell of a lot of repairs without building permits. Especially if your ceiling is falling down. Well, we're going to move on to uh, Mark Cuban. Does everyone know who Mark Cuban is here? Yeah, uh, they named a country after him. I think that would be a sandwich. Oh, they owner of the, the Dallas Mavericks. The owner of the Dallas Mavericks and also a very avid stamp collector. And he's on Shark Tank. Yes, he is one of the main investors on the show Shark Tank. Which, if you're over in Britain, that, that would be similar to Dragon's Den. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Never heard of it. Yeah, it's basically the same premise. Cool. But, hmm. you, you know, you're an entrepreneur. You come in and you pitch a bunch of wealthy investors and see if they'll give you money for part of your company. Oh, it's more than that because even if they don't get it, you, you just look at, like, the Amazon sales of oh, the yeah. stuff that's permit, oh, presented. The, the public exposure on something like that is huge. Monstrous. There's people that have made, like, gone from, like, $100,000 a year to $3 million Yep. Just because they were on Shark Tank for 10 minutes. And that's right. why... And, and that's, that's why without they, an yeah. investor. And that's why the investors do it, because they sit there and go, if I give you $150,000, I know that just being on... Shark Tank here, you're going to be able to pay me back. Pretty much. Yeah. It's kind of a no-brainer. Well, according to Forbes magazine, Mark Cuban is worth an estimated $3.7 billion now. He is the owner, as we spoke of, of the NBA's Dallas Mavericks and is one of the investors on Shark Tank. In an interview not all that long ago with the U.S. Postal Service, he said he was he started collecting when he was 12 years old and liked to find the rarest stamps he could afford. According to Cuban, collecting stamps is an amazing way to start understanding business. Each stamp has its own level of scarcity, of demand, of price, and as a collector, you have to make decisions when to keep a stamp, trade it, or sell it, and when to invest in a new stamp for your collection. Cuban further explained, I learned so much about business and the laws of supply and demand when I was still in middle school that business came easily to me when I got to college and beyond. I bought, sold, and traded so many that the experience taught me as much about business as any class I have ever taken. And uh, he said also that uh, doing stamps, buying, and selling helped pay his way through college. There's, an idea. Yeah. There's a novel idea. Well, buying and selling stamps paid for... This building we're in, from me, it ba paid for my house. You know, I, I've it's very, very lucrative if you know what you're doing. And when we talk after the duck show competition, uh, they had a little trading post at Springs Preserve that uh, plays right into this also. So stay tuned. Well, he was saying when he was younger that... Um 
he would do things like he would go and and get the the ads out of the back of magazines, you know, order a pack of a hundred stamps, and he would sit there and looking them all up, trying to find out if you know which one was the scarcest, and then, you know, he would go to places and like you know go to shows and buy like fifty cent stamps that he knew was worth something. Then he'd go down to another dealer and sell it for fifty bucks. Mm-hmm. Let's see, he's he's a hustler. He was he's always he was always moving and still is. Well, this week we're going to talk about the 2018 Federal Duck Stamp Competition, which was held this past weekend at Springs Preserve here in our own hometown of Las Vegas, Nevada. I know uh, Cash went for a little while on Friday. Mark, you were there all day Saturday, Friday and Saturday, Friday right? Friday and Saturday, yeah. And Scott and I were both there for a while on uh, Saturday. Yeah, it was it was actually pretty interesting. Tom and I caught the final round of judging, and it was actually quite interesting. I The first couple of rounds uh, were probably a little bit longer, seeing as they had to weed out a lot of the images that didn't meet the criteria for the competition this year. Yeah, tell them what the competition the, was. They added, a for the duck stamp, for next year's duck stamp, they added an element of hunting into the requirements of the painting, and there were a number of entries that did not meet that requirement. Yeah, when I went there, they had, it was after the first round, and they had all the rejected pictures. And, you know, some of them were like Art Deco that, you know, nothing, and some of them were like in crayon, which obviously like kids did or something. But some of them, I look at them and go, these are fantastic. Why were these tossed in the very first round? And it turned out they were tossed because they didn't have a, hunting element in it. So these really, really fantastic pictures got booted because it didn't have a a person with a gun or a hunting dog or decoys or something like that. And this is the first year that a hunting element has been introduced to the duck stamp since 1960. Was it required in 1960? Uh, It probably wasn't required, but... um, uh, th- uh, but basically, it's the only one that had then, it with the Labrador, right? With the Labrador, yeah. And but, it's the most one of the most popular duck stamps, the one with the Labrador. But the, the but the guy who was championing the idea of, of adding a hunting element to a hunt, to a duck hunting stamp, uh, he says this is the this is the first year that uh, that they've done it, and he's been after this for decades. Well, for those who may not know, the migratory the migratory bird hunting and conservation stamp, which is what we all call the duck stamp, serves as a hunting permit for migratory waterfowl. Uh, In the back of the catalog, they are the RW stamps. R for revenue and W for waterfowl. Okay. I didn't know that. I knew the R was for revenue. Oh, he made that up. (laughs) (laughs) The R is for revenue, but the the W just was a random assignment. But yes, no, it kind of makes sense, though. But it's an easier way to remember it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out what was the Y stand for in the RYs. Just the next, just the next number in the alphabet, the letter in the alphabet. It's you got a duck, right? Meaning, meaning it's a firearm. Stand. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, enacted in 1934 by President Franklin Roosevelt, it required all hunters over the age of 16 to carry a federal hunting stamp. Ninety-eight cents of every dollar goes to the Migratory Bird Conservation Fund for the purchase of wetlands and wildlife habitat. 
Since 1934, there have been over $800 million raised that has protected more than 5.7 million acres of habitat. Well, this year they got 250 bucks from me. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a full sheet of duck stamps? Oh, a full sheet is, is 500 bucks. $500. Yeah, it's a sheet, of, uh, a paint of 20 is 500 bucks. But they also this year, had, for uh, whatever reason, they had a, a new format. It was a souvenir sheet of four. Wow. Now, with a $25 <laughs> face value, that's still 100 bucks. But yeah, it but is kind of nice But it's looking. better than having to pay 500 for a full sheet if you want something that you don't have. Because this is the true. first year they were also, they're all serpentine die cut. They're no longer perforated. That's true. The so regular you, sheet stamp is not perforated this year. So what did you spend 250 on? I spent $100 on... A souvenir sheet? On a souvenir sheet. I bought a plate block of four, and then I bought the, the single ATM... The ATM vended, so it was. Did you get any of them uh, autographed? Because I know the uh, artist was there. Yes, mm -hmm. two hundred. Uh, actually, it was two hundred twenty-five dollars. So, um, yes, I took my plate block and I had uh, Bob Houtman yeah. sign all four stamps. What was it? The plate block, or was it? Because Mark no, it was the plate block. You got one where it had the artist's name on it. Right. Yeah. It was a it was a corner single with uh, with Robert's name. And so I had him sign those as well. Yeah, that that I, I like that one because it has the artist, and then you look and it matches, and you go, oh, okay, that's the artist. I got nobody. I, I saw a couple of judges, but I saw no artists. I was there at the wrong time. Everybody had gone to lunch. Well, the nice thing was they made a presentation after the after the judging. They made a or no, it was before the judge before the third round judging. They made a presentation to Bob. Oh, okay. Yes, the the grand prize award is you get a sheet of the stamp you designed signed by the Secretary of the Interior framed. Yes. And of course, and the knowledge that you're making millions of dollars for wetlands conservation. But now, that's the I prize. That's I don't, it. I don't know if and they a actually... a laurel and a hearty handshake. I don't know if they actually paid for him to attend... Because I'm sure he's not from Las Vegas. Mm. So I, I don't know if they paid for his transportation and, and lodging while he was out here. They may have. Uh, just because it's part of that. Because he's avail he was available for signatures yeah. on, on the stamp. So. And, and none of the Hotman brothers were in this year's competition. Yeah, right. They weren't eligible. Right. None of the, you have. Why weren't they eligible? Uh, because you can't compete uh, in the competition if you won within, I think, three years. Yeah. So they all won with They've all won the last three years. They've each won the last, each one has won the last three years. Wow. So this is the only. So watch out next year. Yeah. This is the only year that all three of them can't compete. Which, by the way, if you want to see these guys and what they sound like and look like, they were also playing the movie Million Dollar Duck in their auditorium there. And I didn't stick around for yeah, it. Yeah, they, it they late, played but. it on Friday, but they weren't doing it on Saturday. Oh, they didn't do it? On, no. I, no. It, it was only a Friday thing, unfortunately. Oh, because in the program it said it was going to be every day. And it it listed it as if it's going to be every day continuously. And it wasn't uh, on Friday when I went there. Yeah. But that's a good one. You can pull it up on, I think, either Netflix or Amazon, probably both now. But it's a really, really good movie to see uh, the sort of character types it's 
it's not really a story about the duck stamp competition. It's a really a story about the artists and it's really, really well done. Well, if you want to know more about, uh, about duck stamps, there's also a book called the duck story, a book. Hold on. Yeah. It's a book. Written, oh, written by Bob Dumain. I remember what a book is. Is that uh, is that a podcast that's uh, put on dead trees? I I remember I I saw some of those in a museum once. Well, the first federal duck stamp was designed by J. N. Ding Darling, a political cartoonist from Des Moines, Iowa, who was chief of the Bureau of Biological Survey which was the predecessor to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. In subsequent years, noted wildlife artists were asked to submit designs to be considered for the stamp. It wasn't until 1949 that the first art contest was open to any U.S. artist who wished to enter. To this day, the Federal Duck Stamp Art Contest remains the only art competition of its kind sponsored by the U.S. government and one that anyone may enter. And by the way, it's the only art contest where the rules are codified in U.S. code. Oh, really? Yep. Who wrote the code? Where, is it Department of Interior? I imagine it was lawyers. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Um, Either that the or US a cryptologist. Fish, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Yeah. A cryptologist. Well, no, I'm just wondering if the uh, Congress all get, got together and debated this and then signed it in the law at the Capitol that we were talking about. No, it's probably one of those government bureaucrats. Uh, cubicle dwellers. Little lizards. Deep state. Deep state. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the well. cabal of the uh, <laughs> the Illuminati cabal establishing uh, duck picture rules. <laughs> well, as we discussed, a sheet of stamps is now $500. And that is because in 2014, President Obama signed into law the first price increase for the duck stamp in more than 20 years. This brought the cost of the stamp from $15 to $25, beginning in the 2015-2016 year that it was released. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Obama. Well, the price increase ensures that funds will be available to protect an estimated 17,000 additional acres of habitat every year. Yeah, but at the cost of the stamp collectors. Well, don't buy the stamp. And the hunters. And the hunters. And the hunters. The additional $10 will be used to acquire conservation easements, allowing important habitat to be protected for future generations while allowing the owners of the property to, repay, to retain private property rights and to live on and use their own land. So they're not actually purchasing the land. They're actually... They're buying easements. They're leasing. Yeah, they're just leasing it. Yeah. Well, they're, they're well, that's getting... Well, prob- that's probably a good way for them to increase their, their land use because I'm sure there's people yeah. who's like, uh, I don't want to give up my land. Yeah, and they're like, well, how about if we lease it from you? Well, it's not a lease. It's a covenant, probably. And what No, they it's, say is, it's actually a lease. Really? Yeah. That's what they announced, yeah. That's weird, then. From if, a legal, if you, if you from a legal the, standpoint, that's really weird. If you would read the Fish and Wildlife Service do, uh, brochures, they call it leasing. Oh, that's something I would not ever expect. Well, we were talking about the hunting element this year that was introduced, and... Some of the art did not contain a hunting element, so it was, and if it didn't, it was immediately disqualified. Well, I was noticing that the different elements that the artists chose to include, I saw decoys, duck blinds, hunting dogs, uh, hunters. Oh, there were some that I saw just uh, like empty shotgun shells laying on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Uh, Duck blinds. A duck collar. 
Yeah, a lot of duck calls. Um, uh, and some of them had these nesting boxes, which I thought was a weird element to add. I'm I'm still curious about that because I saw those and I'm like, what does a nesting not, box have not, to do as a hunting element? Yeah, not, and I'm wondering. Not being a duck hunter, I I don't know why a nesting box would be qualify as a hunting element. And the people at the Fish and Wildlife said that um, that actually doesn't make a lot of sense because a nesting box is something that would be active in the spring when you have the baby chicks. Right, and, so and forth, that's not hunting that's season. Not hunting and that's season. not hunting season. So I'm wondering if those. Well, I wonder you. You Mark talked and I were talking on Saturday about the possibility of maybe some people having almost a um, an aversion, an avert aversion, right? Or yeah, a, kind of rebelling like their little like their little kind of protest thing. And right. I'm wondering if those ones with the nesting boxes were kind of that kind of thing, and that right. those were disqualified as not a hunting element. Oh yeah, because yeah, prior to this, the only uh, three elements that were required is that it had to be artistically aesthetic. It had to um, be anatomically correct, and it had to look good on a stamp. Right, which means when it's miniaturized. <laughs> right. So, um, so the addition now of the, uh, the, the only hunting... thing I can think of for a nesting box would be that it uh, encourages the waterfowl to actually nest and reside in that area, so that when hunting season comes around, that's kind of like their home territory that they that but they return to. Hold on, hold on. But hold technically, on. this hold is on, all on. for. Migratory birds. Right. What, what is a nesting box? It's a birdhouse. It's basically oh, a birdhouse bird for ducks. Yeah. Oh, okay. Generally, because they, they're in wetlands areas, what they do is they sink a pole into the ground and they mount a box up higher so that the ducks have a dry place to nest and lay eggs and stuff like that. Oh, okay. And a few of the entries, um, the hunting, so called hunting element was just a sign. That identified the area as wildlife wildlife refuge. Oh, we were talking to Mark and I were talking to one of the guys from the wildlife service. And he said, "You couldn't actually. There's no words allowed to be on the the design. So some of the guys, there's some of the guys or girls that did the artwork that had signs in them that you could tell that they were intentionally blurred out, like there was writing there, but you couldn't read it, so it wasn't actually words. Interesting. I saw a couple that did have readable words." then they would have been disqualified. Right. I just had a horrible thought, like, you show a duck that was, like, shot by buckshot or something like that. That would be a... Well, the, the one well, with the, the Labrador from 1960. He's, he's got, got a, a duck dead duck in dead his mouth. Duck, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no blood. No blood. No. True. But they might take that as the aesthetically pleasing part. Yeah. Well, but, you know, you shoot a duck with buckshot, and a lot of times there isn't a lot of blood. Oh, or it falls in the water and it all washes off. I think next year I'm going to submit a zombie duck as my... <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, this year's competition, uh, third place entry went to artist Greg Alexander of Ashland, Washington for his acrylic painting of oh, a flock would, of... That would be Wisconsin. Yeah, give him, give him proper credit. What did I say? Washington. Oh, shoot. The third place entry this year went to artist Greg Alexander of Ashland, Wisconsin for his acrylic painting of a flock of lesser scalp coming into land with his hunting element being a hunter with his gun at the ready sitting in his boat with a hunting dog. And this was actually my choice for the first prize. Yeah, me yeah. too. I think this is me an too. excellent stamp. I'm it is really pretty. And um, we will, of course, have all the pictures of the winning designs uh, up on stampshowheretoday.com. The second place artist was Frank Middlestadt of Beaver Dam, Wisconsin, for his acrylic painting of a wood duck standing on a limb over a pond. 
The hunting element used in this painting was a hunter with his dog waiting in the pond, placing his decoys. This looks like a kind of an end of the day scene. I couldn't tell. To me, it was either it's sunrise and he's placing them or it's sunset and he's out picking them up. Right. When I looked at it, I thought he was picking them up. I didn't think he was putting them down. Yeah. And it looks like this duck is like the survivor of that day. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing that I didn't like when they were doing the final judging on this is I didn't like he looked like he was sitting in a tree. And you just don't see ducks sitting in trees that often in my experience. Right. So that was the only thing that kind of bugged me about that one. Yeah, he's standing on a limb as opposed to on the ground. The winner of this year's competition was Scott Storm from Fremont, Minnesota, for his acrylic painting of a wood duck on the water. The hunting element used by Mr. Storm was paint was a painted decoy in the background, and it was his second win at the competition. Uh, his first win was 2004-2005, Scott number RW71. It is an excellent choice. I didn't see, Mark saw it from the beginning, and you picked your stamp at the very beginning when you first saw them. Right. And from all the entries, you picked third place, which was pretty cool. I only saw the final round of judging, but when that one came up, I was like, that's it. For right. me, I was like, that's the one. I was just, It's so striking, and the decoy is amazing. Mm-hmm. You can actually see all the wood grain in the in the in the decoy under the paint, and it's just it's really cool to me. I yeah, didn't well I didn't done. have the same reaction as you did when I saw it the first time, but the more I look at it, the more it kind of grows on me, and the more I do like it. I thought the colors were striking, and like I said, the the level of detail in the decoy in the background was just amazing to me. There was another entry um, that uh, didn't make it into the second round. Um, that was a it was similar where it was a duck in the foreground and a decoy in the background, but it really it really struck me because the decoy uh, that the artist painted was really old and pieces were missing out of it. And, you know, oh, like paint flecks off and stuff like yeah, that. I think I saw. I yeah. think you showed me that one. That was pretty cool and too. I, I thought uh, it, it kind of told me a story about that. This is probably a, an older hunter, maybe my age, that made this decoy when he was a kid. And just, you know, kept reusing it because it worked. Or something that, you know, grandpa used, that dad used, that now the kids use. And it. it's just kind of, you know, same decoys just passed down through generations. Right. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, this year there was also the Junior Duck Stamp Competition, which was held back in April. The Junior Duck Stamp is not a permit stamp, but it is a $5 face value. And the revenue from that does also go to help conservation efforts. But the junior duck stamp is for those who are less than 18 years of age. Yes, it is. And basically, it kind of gets the kids used to competing in the art competition in the hopes that they will continue and submit for the regular competition when they're old enough. Well, I was reading somewhere, I think it was on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service website, that when they enter, it's actually you kind of get into a, a conservation program. And you kind of learn about everything, and then at the end of it, you get to do the picture that ah. you can then submit. So it's kind of like you go through this, and then they're hoping that what that does is they keep com- people keep coming back, and you know, so probably a lot of these people who have won who've been drawing these ducks for years, maybe now, right? Because you could tell some of them. I mean, they had the ages in the area that they were in, 
and I believe it was Mark Re talking about how they have it from each 50 states. Right, right. Each each uh, state holds a contest, and then the winner of that contest gets submitted for the Junior Ducks. And then so out of those 50 entries, they pick the first, second, and third. So you have just one person from each state is in the final judging. Well, this year, third place winner was 17-year-old Larissa Weber of Anderson, Indiana, for an acrylic painting of trumpeter swans. Second place was awarded to 17-year-old Daniel Billings of Gallatin, Montana, for his oil painting of a redhead duck, which was very, very cool, actually. And the winner of the Junior Duck Stamp Competition was Rayon Kang of Johns Creek, Georgia, whose acrylic painting of an emperor goose will be on the 2018-2019 Junior Duck Stamp. Actually, no. that was already issued. Right, it's on, it's on the 20, yeah, 2018-2019, yeah. Yeah, and these well, did not have hunting elements in them. These don't have the same No, these rules are yeah, the, these are uh, just um, yeah. paintings of ducks. Yeah, but the first prize is definitely well deserved. It's an excellent, yeah, excellent actually, image. For that one, I actually like the second place painting better. It just the the colors were more aesthetic to me than the first the, place one. Yeah, the first place one where the water was really really blue. That's not the first place. One. I like I like the red. That's the second place right that's there. Second place. That's third place. That's first place. No. no, no, the swans, the the pink swan one this is, is first third. place. Is it the green one? I didn't see that one. Let me see. Yeah, the I agree totally. The second place has that red head, and then in addition to that, there's like a red um, coloring to the water, and it really blends in, and it makes it really super striking. I I, I think the green is is a little too green. Yeah. Green. Yeah. Too much green. Although the red is too much red, and I like it. <laughs> the green, the green, he's on a lake. That's that's the new lake color. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Book of Secrets coming out with uh, colors in it. Well, as, we said, as I said earlier, uh, you'll be able to find images of both the junior and federal top three designs on our website, stampshowheretoday.com. And we will also provide links to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service website where you can get more information regarding the duck stamps and the competition this year. And if you ever get a chance to see one of these competitions, it really is kind of a fun fun event. Oh, yeah. They had vendors there and everything. You could walk around, see stuff. Everybody was very, very nice. The judges were incredibly nice. I'll have to give a shout-out to uh, Ducks Unlimited because I thought they're one of their, their conservation group as well. And they had a table downstairs and they had a calendar it seemed like it was one of those things that you know oh here's a calendar calendar's 50 bucks <laughs> but the reason the calendar is 50 bucks is on every week of the year they have a picture in this in in the center of the week of a particular gun shotguns handguns um hunting rifles, things like that. And, they and what they do is they give away one, that gun every week. So $50 calendar, 52 chances to win a gun. I'm like, suddenly that doesn't seem like such a bad idea. Yeah. Well, did, But it, I didn't have 50 bucks on yeah. me for a calendar. Uh, my favorite vendor was up front. They had the guy who was making the decoys out of the reeds and the sticks. Oh, yeah, they had yes. a decoy thing that was outside towards the front of the place. Yeah, he he was interesting to listen to. And, you know, it, it didn't they didn't look real, but they looked really super cool. That's That was uh, an old Indian technique yeah. of how they made them out of the reeds. Well, he was an Indian. Yeah. He was a hoop, hoopla, hoopa. 
Hopi? I don't know. No, not Hopi. It's uh, the ones that are over by the Grand Canyon. I think it's Hoopas. I don't know. I actually, I saw, I saw them there, but I never actually saw anyone making them and oh, trying to wrangle my two kids at the same time. They were like all over the place. So, <laughs> yeah. because we have passes for Springs Preserve and they know their way around. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me bring up one thing also then, which was really super cool when I, uh, we were there. They have the rock trading center at the inside the gift shop. It's not rock trading. What is it? It's there's actually a lot of different things in there. It's not just rocks. They have. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I I totally understand. Okay, go ahead. Um, well, what we were looking at was it's like rocks and fossils and stuff like that. And what would happen is the kids would bring in their stones and rocks and things that they find that are interesting, and they'd trade them in and get points. Mm-hmm. And then you could use those points to buy their rocks and stones that come from places, you know, like they're getting all their rocks and stones from Nevada and they have them for like from Wyoming and Utah, which has more fossils in them and stuff like that. And it's really a great, it's a great way to teach people how to basically barter what they find for things that maybe they can't find or they trade a lot of things for something which is a better quality. Well, and I can go in even to even more detail on that because my kids do this and they give you points based on not only what you bring in, but how much you know about it. Oh. If you go, hey, I found this really cool rock and it looks like there's a little fossil in here, they go, okay, 20 points. And they add that to your account and you can use it right then or you can save them up. If you go in and go, hey, I found this piece of creosote (laughs) from the Neolithic period that I've done research on, your 20 points just became like 500 points. It's, It's designed that the more you know, the more education and research you have put into the piece, the more points they'll give you. And the things that you purchase with them, tell them what the things you can get. Oh, there's so many things. They have just gigantic assortment. Small gemstones, um, fossil pieces, um, like dried ocean sponges and corals, you know, all the way up to larger um, shark teeth. You can get shark teeth. Um, You know, you can get things that cost five points all the way up to things that cost like 20,000 points. Right. They they had a... uh, restored Tyrannosaurus Rex head there, and it was, uh, I think, 35,000 points. I don't know that you could actually get that. I think that's a joke. I don't know that they would give away their T-Rex head. I don't think so either, but it did have a little (laughs) sign there that said 35,000 points. (laughs) Well, maybe you get a model of that. And I was thinking, man, you know, if we could do something like that with stamp collecting at the stamp shows, because it would be so easy to do. Kids could get stamps off their mail, because Last time we were talking, uh, Scott, you brought up that, you know, there aren't very many stamps on the mail. And when they are, they're boring. They're like organizations. Usually like the definitives, not the commemoratives. So if you could, you know, cut stamps off the mail and then bring it into the stamp show. And then the stamp show has like a trading post for the kids. And you can trade your, you know, 10 regular non-denominational organization stamps for maybe a commemorative 
then all of a sudden, you know, people can, or kids can get these stamps that they can't otherwise get. And I was thinking, if we can get this working, it would have to be with a normal show, you know, a regularly scheduled show. You couldn't do it once a year because, you know, they come and do it once and then they have 11.9 months to totally forget about it. But if you could do it like every month and they have the kids come in and say, here's the stamps I found, you know, oh, you got 425 points, go Go well, to and, it. and the more you know about the stamps, just like the, the oh, trading yeah. post oh, yeah. at Springs Preserve, you know, if you can, you know, hey, here's a stamp I found. Oh, hey, here's Scott number 536. Um, and it, it celebrates this particular thing and stuff like that. It's like, okay, no, now you get, now you get 30 points instead of five yeah. points. And uh, I know a lot of the uh, youth committee members at various shows like Sescal. And I'm going to bring this up to him because, like I said, when I went to Springs Preserve, I had never seen anything like that. And they did such a fantastic job of it. It's like, this is incredible. The only problem I ever had with it is we got we got a family membership for all of us. And it came with a bucket of points kind of to start with. Oh, okay. And like all last summer and into the fall when we went there, I don't know if they were short-staffed of volunteers or something. But every time we went, it was closed off. Oh, so yeah. my girls have really only done it once because there's only one time that we've been there that they've had stuff. And there's things that they don't take. It has to be natural. But the, you know, the, you can't bring them a dead animal. Oh, and it, say this yeah. is you know, hey, there, here's a dead skunk. They, they specifically said you can't turn in anything with bones. And yeah. they said, and they said, well, what about fossils? And literally, he said. As long as a fossil doesn't have bones in it. It's like, oh, okay, so you can bring in sea urchins and trilobites and sponges and everything. But actually, if you found a Tyrannosaurus rex head, technically they wouldn't take it. I probably wouldn't give them that. I'd probably give it to somebody else that would pay me lots of money for it. Well, that too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of uh, collecting stamps and things like that, there are some new issues coming out. Or there's a new issue coming out. I apologize. Saturday, September 22nd, the United States will be releasing the Birds in Winter booklet pane of 20 Forever stamps. The stamps will be released at the Vermont Institute of Natural Science at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. The stamps feature depictions of four different winter birds, the black-capped chickadee, the northern cardinal, the blue jay, and the red-bellied woodpecker. The stamps were designed by art director Antonio Alcala, and it was using original artwork by Nadia Taylor. I thought these already came out. No. How about some show action? Show action. You want some show action? No, we can't do that here. BN Apex of 2018 is September 21st through 23rd in Quebec City in Quebec, Canada. Their website is www.bnaps.org forward slash BNAPEX, forward slash BNAPEX 2018. The Greater Houston Stamp Show will be September 21st through 23rd in Humble, Texas. Their website is HoustonStampClub.org. I'm not sure how to pronounce this. Chelmpex, C-H-E-L-M-P-E-X, is September 22nd in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. Roapex is going to be September 22nd in Vinton, Virginia. And I love their website, BigLickStampClub.org. <laughs> it's Roapex because it's near Roanoke, Virginia. That would have been my guess. 
And then there is the fourth Sunday Collectibles show in New Haven, Connecticut on September 23rd. Their website, nhps1914.org. And this week on September 23rd is the monthly Las Vegas stamp show at the Hilton Garden Inn on Las Vegas Boulevard. And there's also going to be a get-together at the offices of PSE in Las Vegas on Saturday the 22nd as well. So if you're in any of these areas and need to get out to a stamp show, come on out and check it out. Anyone got any final words today? No one's going to pick on the design of the winter bird stamps? Yeah, well, the reason why I was confused is because they had the same picture or the same birds but they were actually like pictures of the birds, and these are sort of drawings of the birds. They're drawings of the birds. They're pretty drawings. I'll I'll give them that. But I totally when I when I read the release, I totally expected to find an image, and it was going to be like photos. Yeah. So I was like, oh, but they're cool. They're so, okay. They're okay. They're moderately neato. Thank you, George Carlin. <laughs> Anytime. Thank you for listening. This has been Stamp Show here today, episode number 191. This was Tom. And Cash. And Scott. And Mark. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.